Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the TJ FM network. That's T-E-E-J.FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Goleska about UVA Hospital's aggressive billing practices. But first, I bring my own trash to the recycling experts at Charlottesville tomorrow for some waste reduction advice. They've recently published a huge piece on recycling in Charlottesville and Albemarle that you don't want to miss. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Charlotte Renee Woods and editor Elliot Robinson. We're also joined by freelance journalist Melissa Castro, who recently wrote a piece for Charlottesville Tomorrow about local recycling shortcomings. So this is a local issue written about from a local perspective, but let's start on the other side of the world. Can you tell us why a policy in China had an impact on local waste? As it turns out, uh, the vast majority of our recyclable materials were really only being recycled by manufacturers in China. We do have a few local-ish manufacturers who can use these products, but they can't use nearly the amount that we're producing. So recently, China decided that they could no longer accept that, that amount of materials, nor could they do anything with such filthy materials, which is what Charlottesville and many other people had been producing by using so-called single-stream recycling programs. And that was when everybody thought that if they just put everything into this one trash can that was labeled single-stream recycling, some magical little fairies would come in and sort the trash from the recyclable materials and somehow polish it up and shine it and make it worthwhile. And that wasn't happening. And China was eventually looking at these products saying they're contaminated, they're gross, and they're unusable, and we're not going to take them anymore. So that sort of shut down the whole process that uh, we were using to recycle our stuff. And unfortunately, as it turns out, a lot of local individuals as well as even local companies don't even know that that single stream recycling doesn't actually exist anymore. And they're still contracting with companies who they believe are recycling their materials, and they're not. This cup, I picked it up at ACAC Cafe this morning for a smoothie. And as I was walking out, I had to put on my reading glasses to figure out whether it was a one or two. And the guy working behind the counter said, can can I help you? And I told him, oh, I'm just trying to decide if this is recyclable and therefore I need to take it home to wash it. And he said, "Uh, no, we use single stream recycling. Just toss it in. And I had a conversation with him and and I said, actually, that that doesn't exist. And he said, no, we have a time container in back. It says it right on there that it's single stream recycling. And I said, does Phil Wendell, the owner of ACAC, know that? And he said, I don't know. So I walked over to Phil Wendell's office and asked about it and, and told him, hey, did you know that single stream recycling doesn't exist anymore? And he said, no, Phil does not know that. And thank you for bringing it to his attention. So I think that that is um, maybe one of the biggest takeaways for me is that there are all these local companies that are producing a lot of waste as well as producing a lot of materials. And if you bring to their attention what you do know, these are good people. And I think a lot of them are willing to make some big changes. As you learn things, definitely pass it along. So I live in the city. If I put all my recyclables in a green bin on the street, where does it go? Well, if they're contaminated, they're going straight to a landfill. There is a single stream recycling process going on now that is legitimate, but ends up with a lower uh, recycling rate than if you're just sorting things by hand. 
So the single stream recycling process that is going on now, they require you to use a separate bin um, for recyclables and a separate bin for your garbage. So those are two separate things. But then in your recycling can, there are plastics, there are metals, paper, all that sort of thing. And two stops. First, it um, goes to Zion's Crossroads, and they dump it on a floor there. And that floor used to be Vanderlyn's single stream recycling facility. And that's where they had their equipment that was supposedly processing your trash and your recyclables all in one. They moved all that equipment out, and now that's just a tipping floor. So County Waste, who's picking up the city's garbage, is taking that to Zion's Crossroads as well as private haulers like Time Disposal who are working elsewhere, they're bringing it to the same floor. Everybody's tipping it there, and then County Waste is picking it up in longer trucks and hauling it out to the recycling facility in Chester. Depending on whether there is a market for those materials, that's what determines whether those things actually get recycled. So they'll decide what's worth recycling and what they're going to landfill. And is this just plastics or other recyclables like aluminum, glass, and paper? We are pretty sure that aluminum, for instance, is getting recycled because that has value. And in fact, it doesn't actually have to be that clean. Glass has a little less value. Some recycling facilities won't accept glass anymore because it's so heavy and it's so hard on their systems. It breaks their equipment. As far as I know, County Waste is still accepting glass and presumably has buyers for that. But if they don't, conveniently... There's a landfill connected to their recycling facility by a very short road. And I did try to ask them questions about um, where they're sending materials that we know there is no longer a market for, like plastics three through seven, and they declined to provide an answer. Well, that is really bad news. What can people do if they want to actually reduce their waste, reduce What's going in the landfill? You have to, as you go throughout your day, really think hard about your actions. If you go to get a drink, look what container it comes in. If you can bring your own mug there, do that instead. If you get a drink that comes in a plastic straw and it's still in the wrapping, uh, politely send it back. If you're looking at packaging, look at the labels on them to see what needs to be done with it. There is a company in Charlottesville that does the little labels on the bottom that tells you how to Mm -hmm. sort out your materials. By the way, I've noticed uh, we buy a lot of milk for our family. And when you're at the grocery store, there is a real panoply of choices there in terms of uh, paper cartons, glass, or plastic. And I think if you look at it um, without thinking much about it, you would assume that the paper is probably more sustainable than the plastic. But the plastic is actually recyclable. Admittedly, only about a third of it is getting recycled. But paper, there's nothing that they can do with it, in part because it is has a plastic coating to it, as well as oftentimes an aluminum la- layer as well. So those paper cartons are going straight to a landfill. The plastic, about a third of the time, is getting recycled. And then there's glass that is pretty much the best option. And I realized um, when I did a little bit of math at Harris Teeter the other day that it was actually cheaper to buy the um, glass organic half gallon than it was to buy the paper organic one, as long as I take the time to bring my bottle back and get my deposit back. It was significantly cheaper. When you go grocery shopping, bring your own bag, Mm -hmm. less plastic bags. Those things really add up a lot. They really do. And also bear in mind that those plastic bags, um, while they're far from desirable, they are recyclable. So you, you need to take really good care of those bags if you do accept them. Ideally, you would bring them home, um, stuff them all into another plastic bag, 
And that also includes like toilet paper overwrap, um, paper towel overwrap, all of these sort of thin films that are polyethylene. All of those are recyclable pretty much locally by a company named Trex, which makes decking material in Winchester. Those are recyclable materials, but a lot of companies like County Waste won't accept them. So if you're a city resident, you look at your bin and it says no plastic bags. If you have the time, please take care of those plastic bags and take them to the McIntyre facility where they will be sent to Trex. And what's different about the McIntyre facility? So um, McIntyre is the recycling facility that's literally on McIntyre Road and is jointly funded by both Albemarle County as well as the city of Charlottesville. And when you take things to McIntyre, there's a series of containers there that put in all of your materials. And before you take it there, you have to make certain that you have uh, clean materials to take wash there. Your and trash. Yes, definitely wash your trash and sort them out into those bins there so they go to the correct uh, facilities. So even though the city of Charlottesville does have this single stream recycling curbside program, that doesn't mean that they don't want you to also use McIntyre. Your curbside recycling is just one part of the solution, and there are other solutions that they also want you to pay attention to, including McIntyre and including and especially composting. Could you tell us a little bit more about composting? In doing it, as I walked away, I was like, wait, that was really the biggest thing. That was the biggest impact that we could have had is by composting our materials. What it does is it removes food waste from landfills, right? When there is food waste biodegrading in landfills, it creates something like 30 times the methane gas of a car. But I don't know if it's, you know, a car doing what? Who knows? Nonetheless, that sounds like a big number. It sounds like a giant impact, right? I also don't like having smelly food in my trash can, personally. So... If that's the biggest impact we can have, considering that so much of these materials that we're quote-unquote recycling are not really being recycled, I feel like composting is, is at least the smallest step we can take. You can compost some materials at McIntyre. You know, my family uses black bear composting, and we just collect our food in a uh, carbon tin container in the kitchen. It doesn't even smell. And then just take the old slop can out to the, the big giant bin on the corner and then they haul that away every two weeks and they actually return a big serving of compost that we use in our garden and they also return a clean can so it doesn't still smell like food waste by the way so it's really um, a big impact that we can have somebody from the city told me that when you look at your trash can um, a third of it is landfillable a third of it is recyclable and a third of it is compostable so really in the end you shouldn't have a full trash can you should have basically a third of a trash can I brought you some of my trash, and I'm hoping that you'll help me figure out what I can do with each piece of it. So we've got this nice, big 12-pack Star Hill box that beer came in, cardboard, colored. Where can I take it? That's McIntyre, mixed paper. A brown beer bottle. I'm seeing a theme here. (laughs) This one is the Reviver Red IPA. That would be recyclable either through Single Stream or at McIntyre. A paper towel. Compostable. Compostable. There's no wax on this or anything? No. It's also mixed paper. What? Two for there. Even if something is recyclable, if you can't compost it, you probably should. An old CVS receipt. Also compostable. Receipts are compostable? As far as I know. No way. Nice to know when CVS gives you such long ones. All right. This is a plastic grocery sack. This one is from Target. 
little ASMR part of today's podcast. <laughs> that uh, should definitely go straight to McIntyre, and it will become a beautiful deck with a very long lifespan. This is a flyer that someone gave me when I was walking on the downtown mall. It's just a piece of paper with some color printing on it. Anyone have a guess? I don't want to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Recyclable as mixed paper, office paper, or compostable. A clear plastic container that my grape tomatoes came in. Yes, it would definitely... Has a number one on the bottom. Yeah, the the ideal destination would be McIntyre because we know that they have a buyer for it. We're not sure whether County Waste has a buyer for it or not, but they probably do. You definitely have to check the labels on those because that one was labeled one, but some of them have a different plastic number on them. There are a bunch of different kinds of plastic, numbered one through seven. So could you tell us a little bit about what each of those kinds of plastics are and how they're different from each other? Okay, the the plastics, they all have uh, very long names, so I won't go through exactly what they're called, but one and two are very common. Uh, Number one, plastics are usually water and soda bottles. There's some that are fruit storage containers. They are very recyclable. Number two is usually the bottles for milk and cleaning supplies, uh, things like that. Once you get beyond that, you start getting into a little bit more complicated materials that are harder to recycle and sometimes are made with chemicals that could be highly toxic going to the process or also for consumption. Like, for example, if you're using uh, number five and you drink a hot liquid through it, you could be leaching some of those chemicals into your body. Number three plastics are things like the plastic overwrap for materials and Plumbing for your pipes, usually called PVC. Number four are things like takeout coffee cups and some bread wrappers. Number five are the straws in your yogurt cups, as we had mentioned before. Number six are things like the lids for food containers and the lids that go on your coffee cups when you take them to go. And number seven is really a catch-all of, we know that they're plastic, we don't know exactly what they're made of, and that It's the hardest one to recycle at all because no one knows exactly what they're getting into once they receive these materials. Yummy. (laughs) Yeah. Sadly, I think that's what most of our toys are made of, too. So, Yeah, there's. it also contains bisphenol A, which is BPA. This one is an aluminum can. It's not aluminum. It's not aluminum. It's not aluminum. It's tin. Is it recyclable? It is. It's in a separate bin at McIntyre, and it is also recyclable through county waste. We've got another can. This one's a little different. This is a beer can. Back to the theme. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, highly recyclable. Aluminum, uh, to quote Phil McCallops, who is the director of Of Solid Solid Waste Waste at Ravana Solid Waste Authority, um, he considers aluminum to really be the the apex of recycling. It is 100%, you know, something you can melt down and use the exact same amount of energy to create another can. Glass should be that way. It's actually cheaper to use recycled materials to make the next bottle than it is to use virgin materials. But because it's so heavy, it ends up imposing a cost to transport. And so so can beer the way to go. <laughs> so we have two different metals that look very similar to me. Same or different containers? Different containers at McIntyre are the same container if you're a city recycling customer. 
So we, we definitely don't have all the answers. Um, Charlotte and I are both sitting here holding plastic cups with plastic tops, and she, there she is slurping on the straw. She can afford to slurp on the straw because she's really young and she doesn't have any wrinkles, but as it turns out, not only are straws bad for turtles, they're bad for old ladies like me, and they cause wrinkles. <laughs> Why is it so important for people to reduce their waste here in Charlottesville? One number that jumped out at me, I think it was 2018, given the number of people who live in the Charlottesville area and the tonnage of waste that was hauled out of here, each one of us is basically responsible for more than a thousand pounds of garbage each year. And when you think about what a thousand pounds looks like, it's hard for me to look myself in the mirror. So anything I can do to reduce that, I think I'm willing to do. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Melissa Castro is a freelance journalist recently published in Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. And Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network. That's T-E-E-J.FM. WTJU and TJFM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, here on Soundboard each week, we take a look at state news and politics, and we turn to our friend and journalist Peter Galaska, who writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. He's based over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Well, the big state news this week, Peter, at least one of the big stories, is right here in Charlottesville. Uh, The Washington Post ran a huge piece on uh, UVA Health's pretty aggressive uh, bill collection practices. Take me through what this is all about. Well, this is not the first time um, a big health system has been called out for really kind of sticking it to people who, through no, no fault of their own, can't have any trouble paying the medical bills. But the Washington Post and Kaiser News Health Service um, came out with a a very substantial story saying that from 2013 to 2018, UVA Health System um, was involved in something like um, 36,000 lawsuits over uh, debt. And debt, you know, receiving involved something like $106 million. And um, this involved all kinds of court action about people who were, you know, forced to have their wages garnished, and some people were forced into bankruptcy. And I mean, just to give one quick advance uh, example of what happened: uh, a woman in Monroe, a nurse, uh, lost her husband from leukemia, and he was being treated by UVA. And so she owed, I don't know, I can't tell exactly, but I think it's, you know, several thousand, six, seven thousand dollars still. And so she's had her wages garnished twice and is in and out of court. And you just, just wonder what, what's going on here. I mean, why is this? To be fair, I mean, a lot of this has been, you know, there are a lot of, you know, for example, um, Centura Healthcare, according to Virginia Mercury, is also one of the leaders in, in debt, aggressive debt collection. There have been stories in the past about Mary Washington. There have been stories I know recently in some major newspapers, especially in the Midwest, about how entire rural towns that have limited health resources that just have, you know, complete days when the courts are taken over with um, hundreds of cases of debt collection. And this just goes to the head once again of the you know health crisis that persists in this country. 
So before we talk about kind of what could be done about it and, and some of the next steps, one thing that, that Virginia – or rather one thing that UVA has pointed out is that you know they're a state agency and so they're bound by law to try to collect debts. But how they do it, there's maybe more latitude than what's been done. Exactly. I mean, you know, what you can, some of the things that can be done, for example, maybe they were tried, is that what you either reduce the debt, you you try to get a payment plan or something like that. But um, apparently the university uh, is going to take some reforms. Uh, Supposedly um, on September 13th, um, the university will announce some, some changes in the, the way UVA health goes after debt. They claim it's not related, but the head of the UVA system, health system, Pamela Sutton Wallace, um, it's announced that she's going to be leaving in November. So, you know, it's, it just really makes the university look bad. And uh, it's also kind of cruel. Right, right. And that speaks, I think, to some of the systemic issues. I mean, UVA is one uh, health provider and, you know, locally a very large player in what's really a much larger system. Uh, I mean, We've got a country in a system where, uh, you know, when people are the most vulnerable, they end up saddled with the most debt. What can be done about this? Okay. I think the first issue is that, you know, the old, you know, years ago, the big debt payer was your company and, you know, moves towards bringing shareholder advancement, um, enhancement, uh, and, and the rest, um, you know, healthcare has been one of the things that that system has cut back on or no longer offers. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, you remember in this state, you had to fight for three or four years to get expand, uh, Medicaid expanded to lower income people. And that just shows how crazy it all is. And there are other things that could be done as well. I mean, for example, um, if you get a bill from, say, a health system like UVA, it's not just one bill. It could be five bills. It could be ten bills because you're dealing with the imaging, or you're dealing with physicians, you're dealing with uh, you know blood tests, and they're all separate billing things. The other thing is that there's no absolutely no transparency on prices whatsoever. It's not like you can go in and say, okay, um, you know what, what is it going to cost me to do you know have my cholesterol tested, or you know if I need to have uh, uh, MRI, what does that really cost? And you often can't find out. Or, you know, you really have no choice because the only MRI machine is, you know, within that particular sole area. So all these things factor in to become like a real unworkable oligarchic mess. A real unworkable oligarchic mess sounds like a, I don't think that's a slogan on the PR materials. <laughs> no, it really isn't. <laughs> anyway, but I mean, you know, at least at least they are trying to, they say they're going to try and do something. And as I know, and I mean, this is, this is not an unusual, unique situation. This is everywhere. And, um, you know, and it, it really goes whether you're a nonprofit, you're a profit, what you can do, whether the state laws could be changed to say that, you know, um, you know they'll do their best to collect debt, but I mean, I mean, even it affects students. According to the Daily Progress, one UVA third-year student was dropped out of the university because she was involved in a car wreck that wasn't her fault. Apparently, she was waiting for the other insurance company to pay her bills, which they hadn't done yet. And so UVA Health System complained, and the university said, "You can't come back until you pay your debt." That's wrong. That's crazy. Right. So you know that kind of stuff. Well, sort of related, maybe tangentially, but definitely in the same ballpark. Uh, there's a new report from Oxfam that's got covered in some of the state uh, newspapers this week. Oxfam reporting that Virginia is the worst state in the country for workers. Uh, how do they assess that, and what's that mean? What's that look like? Well, Oxfam is a group, I think it's made of um, 
of 20 nonprofits that look and, and try to support um, wage inequality and, and poverty issues. And they have a number of matrices that, um, you know, basically they rate the states on a number of things like income, um, you know, workers' rights, things like that, benefits. And they brought in out of 100, and 100, you could, uh, 50 states could earn up to 100. I think D.C. did the best at 96. Virginia came in at the lowest, lower even than Mississippi at 1.85. And the number of reasons for, for it involved that um, the state is uh, one of the lowest minimum wages, $7.25 an hour, with very little you know, ways to improve that. Um, it is number 49th in the country in, in protections such as sick leave and pregnancy leave and things like that. And another impact um, is that the state is a right-to-work state, meaning that you can't be forced to pay a, a labor union even though you might be enjoying its benefits. This tends to weaken the ability of a labor union to uh, expand and um, and help you help protect you. And so this kind of keeps it's, – it's kind of a little bit – jolting because, I mean, so many parts of Virginia are really wealthy. In fact, some of the richest you know suburbs in the United States are in Virginia, especially up in northern Virginia. So, But it is sort of a, a really kind of surprising report. And even though it's not directly related to the healthcare system, it once again shows that the inequality and problems that are besetting the state's economy. Um, I want to turn to another part of the state and another uh, another college here, another university. Um, big piece this week in Politico, which you also wrote about uh, later in Bacon's Rebellion, about Liberty University and uh, the, the Falwell right. family. What's the latest here? Well, there was a, this has really made rounds uh, across the country. But uh, Politico had a um, had a, wrote a piece. Uh, it was by a former Liberty grad or by a Liberty grad who spent a number of months on it. It alleges all kinds of Inside dealing by the family of Jerry Falwell Jr., who, of course, is the figurehead and leader of Liberty University. He took over from his late father back about 10 years ago when he died. And, um, you know, Falwell has been very strident in many ways because he's been you know, very up about, uh, you know, supporting Donald Trump and making that his university, which is a private evangelical Christian school, very um, political. And it's an amazing school in some ways because it's gone from a very small background in just a few couple decades to you know 100,000 students, most of which whom are online, and three billion dollars in assets. And anyway, the article alleges several things. It alleges that the Falwells, um, you know, are so dictatorial in their policies that uh, something like more than two dozen uh, officials at the university said it's like a dictatorship. They question the Falwells using university money to get involved into private real estate transactions, including a strip mall. And there are other things of a sexual nature, supposedly. Um, Reverend Falwell, uh, uh, Mr. Falwell, rather, uh, you know, was bragging about his sex life and things like that. And the school is, is fairly anti-gay, and yet apparently Falwell and his wife are fairly active in the LBG. GT in Miami, where they often vacation. So all these things have come to the fore. Falwell himself has asked for an FBI probe, claiming that there's a, a coup against him within the university. Um, we shall see. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. All uh, right. Take it easy, man. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion.
You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week, and if you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or at our podcast home at TEEJ FM, T-E-E-J dot F-M. <laughs>